Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. The instructions of the Lord are perfect reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The Book of Psalms, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and verses 7 and 8, New Living Translation. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The Book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, New Living Translation. Hello! Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. In response to listener requests and overwhelming positive feedback from last week's episode, We are so pleased to present the encore performance of our interview with attorney, author, activist, and former Tallahassee resident Ken Connor from last week's Anchored by Truth program. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments and look forward to receiving them. Find us at www.crystalcbooks.com and drop us a note, please. While you're there, have a look around and sample some of the many offerings available. Whether it's prayers, music, books, poems, quite a bit there for your consideration. And check in often as new products and materials are being created and added regularly. Before we begin our interview, though, we'd like to take a few minutes to meditate on another of God's most important attributes, His infinitude. God's infinite nature tells us that no matter how great are the challenges that we face, that He will ultimately prevail. And as His servants, we will be victorious with Him. To meditate on God's infinitude, we're going to do that by using a devotional extract from R. D. Fierro's book on prayer entitled, Purposeful Prayers. This happens to be day number two from the 30-day devotional study. Infinitude God is infinite. 
In saying this, we are describing God by saying what He is not. For example, God is not finite. In other words, God is not limited in His being. Neither time nor space hems Him in or restricts His activity. It is tempting to say that God has no limits, but speaking strictly, this is incorrect. God is limited by the attributes of His own character. Thus, God, who is infinitely good, can never do anything evil or unrighteous. God's infinitude is one of the reasons He is the only object worthy of our worship, adoration, or prayer. So let's think briefly about an infinite God. People and angels, indeed anything created, are all finite entities. Limits beset our lives. There are limits to our wisdom, strength, money, compassion, love, and every other facet of our experiences and abilities. Because we are finite, it is difficult for us to comprehend or relate to someone who is infinite. Therefore, our conceptual and experiential limitations can adversely impact our prayer lives. As finite beings that live in a world of boundaries and restrictions, it is tempting to prioritize our prayer request lest we try God's patience, exceed our quota, or inadvertently give up a big thing because we also prayed for a small thing. Therefore, we sometimes consciously choose not to pray about something that seems small or minor because we are praying for other needs that seem more important. A teenager may not pray about a test because she is praying about her parents' cancer. A man may not pray about what kind of car to buy because he is much more concerned about business or job pressures. When we approach God with only the greatest needs of our lives, when we fail to cast all our cares upon Him, we are forgetting that God is infinite. God is not taxed or strained by any of the acts He chooses to undertake. If every person in the world prayed to Him 24 hours a day, God could hear every request and act upon each one according to His sovereign pleasure without diminishing His strength or capacity while doing so. God is not constrained and indeed cannot be constrained by anyone or anything other than his own perfect character. God can raise a nation up or put one down just as easily as he can keep a baby bird from falling out of a nest. God can move a galaxy in the furthest reaches of the universe just as easily as he sends a flickering breeze to wave the petal of a daisy. The universe is so vast to us that we cannot see more than a tiny fraction of it, even with our most powerful telescopes. Yet God not only created and maintains the entire cosmos, He could make a million more universes without feeling any strain. The fact that God is infinite should be a tremendous encouragement for Christians to pray about every matter. It means He hears even the smallest of prayers from a believing heart and cannot be hindered in his ability to respond. God has no need to prioritize among people, prayers, or purposes. His storehouse is inexhaustible and his capacity for good unlimited. And remarkably, 
He has given us an open invitation to come boldly before His throne of grace, to draw from the storehouse. Nothing can thwart a purpose of God. In drawing near to God through prayer, we align ourselves to the only one who can truly meet our needs and fill our hearts. God's infinitude assures us that He is never absent or asleep when we approach Him. As finite beings, we will never fully grasp the infinite God, but we can rely surely on the knowledge that as we diligently seek Him, He will more fully and completely reveal Himself to us. Again, we thank you for your feedback and requests. And without further delay, please enjoy this episode of Anchored by Truth, featuring the encore airing of our interview with very special guest, Ken Connor. I'm Victoria Kay in the studio today with Ken Connor, noted attorney, author, activist, and former chairman of the Family Research Council and the Center for a Just Society. By way of a slightly longer introduction of Ken, Listeners should know that Ken has practiced law for over 40 years and has been at the forefront of some of the most important issues confronting our nation and culture pretty much throughout that time. Florida's Governor Bush asked Ken to represent Terry Schiavo in her family's fight to keep Terry alive. Furthermore, as a former president of Florida Right to Life and two national organizations involved in major cultural issues, Ken has unique insights on the challenges facing Christians in America and in our day and time. Also, though he's too modest to tell anyone, Ken was good friends with some of the most important Christian leaders in the last half century, including Chuck Colson and R.C. Sproul, among others. Ken, thanks for being here today to share some of your unique insights. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be back in Tallahassee. Ken. You've been at the forefront of many of the social and cultural issues confronting Christianity in America for the last, well, several years. You were the first person I remember talking about the dangers posed by judicial activism. Do you still see that as a problem in America? Has it improved in the 30 years since you first began talking about it? Or has it gotten worse? I do see it uh, as a problem. What's encouraging, however, is in the intervening time since we've been talking about it, Many others have seen it as a problem as well. First of all, let's define what judicial activism is. Judicial activism occurs when judges usurp responsibilities that don't rightly belong to them. In other words, rather than merely interpreting the law, judicial activism uh, is when judges make the law. In our United States Constitution, we have uh, expressed provisions that separate the various branches of government. The intention behind that was to make sure that people didn't get to abuse their authority. Our founders, recognizing that fallen man was inclined to abuse power, decided to disperse that power among three separate co-equal branches of government. Here in Florida, there's an explicit provision providing for the separation of powers, and that says very explicitly that no individual in one branch of government shall exercise powers appertaining to any other branch of government. And as was pointed out by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, the judiciary was intended to be the weakest of the branches of government. 
it was to be a repository of our freedoms. But they pointed out in the Federalist Papers that when judges usurp authority that doesn't belong to them and begin to exercise authority belonging to one of the other branches, that by its very definition becomes judicial despotism. And we've seen examples of that where judges make law. Roe versus Wade was the classic example. The TW case in Florida, where judges ruled that minor children had a right to abortion, even though no such uh, provision was provided for by law or in the Constitution, and without having uh, their parents' authority or consent. The danger of judicial activism is that one branch becomes more powerful than the other branches. Well, fortunately for us, recent presidents have appreciated the danger associated with that. President Trump is well known for trying to ensure that uh, strict constructionists are on the court and that they are judges who simply interpret the law rather than make the law. In Florida, Governor DeSantos has had the same philosophy. He wants to make sure that judges uh, stick to judging and not uh, legislating, and most recently appointed three justices to the Florida Supreme Court who are judicial conservatives. I'm not saying they're necessarily political conservatives, but they have a conservative view of their role on the court. I think that's a very healthy attitude because what it does is help to ensure that a proper balance is brought back between the three co-equal branches of government. You were also one of the first people to talk about the fact that the life issues included more issues than just abortion. Could you expand a little bit on what you meant and where you see those issues standing today? I can tell you that I've not always been pro-life. I was really deeply convicted years ago when I read a book and saw a film series by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop called Whatever Happened in the Human Race. And in that book, Dr. Koop made the case scientifically for the humanity of the unborn child. Dr. Schaeffer, a theologian, maintained uh, essentially that if we are really dealing with people in the womb, then as Christians, we have an obligation to contend for their protection and preservation. But they also pointed out that this disposable man ethic that gave rise to Roe versus Wade also threatens other vulnerable people groups. When uh, your membership in the human family is determined by whether you're wanted or not, then that impacts not only vulnerable unborn children, but it impacts the vulnerable handicapped who cost more to maintain than they produce. It impacts the elderly who suffer from dementia or disability and who don't score well using quality of life calculus. And so this disposable man ethic that says you're not a member of the human family unless you're wanted really puts at risk others who, because of their disability or their disfigurement or their mental incapacity, or frankly, just because of their cost, are not wanted by others. And so I've seen in my practice everything that Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Coop said come true. The handicapped have been increasingly put at risk. Terry Schiavo here in Florida is a great example of that. Terry Schiavo, a young woman who had suffered a severe brain injury, but who was able to live just by being provided with uh, food and fluids, uh, was deemed to be unwanted. And because uh, she was unwanted, basically, uh, she was not deemed uh, to be a person any longer. And effectively, an activist uh, Supreme Court authorized her uh, 
extermination by uh, dehydration and starvation. Every day in the nursing homes all over this country, Florida included, we see just an epidemic of abuse and neglect that really arises out of this disposable man ethic that says there's a sliding scale of dignity. And once you become compromised in a profound way, somehow your net worth is diminished. One of the reasons R.D. founded Crystal Sea Books was to be part of reclaiming the arts and entertainment parts of our culture for the cause of Christ. He admired the influence that great Christian fiction writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had on a broader culture through their brilliant fiction and allegory. What do you think about that as a vision? Do you share R.D.'s concerns? I do indeed. One, one of the things that I've learned as a trial lawyer And, of course, I learned uh, from my mother, who used to read me stories uh, growing up, is that we communicate essential truths through stories. And the more interesting the story, the more impact uh, the lesson learned often has. And I have really appreciated uh, the work of many of the Christian allegorical writers, and I think you're following in a tremendous tradition, most recently uh, because of your own influence through your own writings. I was convicted that I needed to go back and read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. By the time I finished that book, I was on my knees, humbled at the lessons I had learned uh, in that book. And uh, I'm just so pleased that you're following in that tradition, helping people understand the essential truths about the nature of man and the nature of God. And you've helped communicate those uh, by weaving just a set of fascinating stories that capture people's attention and that are really exposed to truths that they might not find because they might not be otherwise inclined to read the scriptures or a devotional book or something else. So I think it's a great idea and much needed in our age. What do you think are some of the most important discussions going on within the broader culture as they affect the church? Well, Vicki, I think there are probably three areas uh, that I think affect the church, and in turn, the church has the opportunity to impact. There are issues that involve the sanctity and dignity of life, the sanctity and dignity of marriage, and uh, our need to care for and uh, tend to the poor. You know, in the scriptures, our Lord is described as the author of life. And the scriptures tell us that we are created in God's image. And because we are, we have inherent worth, value, and dignity, so much so that our Lord himself sacrificed his son that we would have eternal life. As the scripture says, we've been redeemed not with silver and gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb spotless and unblemished, uh, the blood of Christ. And so Human beings have intrinsic value because we've been made in the image of God. That's a concept that society has lost sight of. Among the dominant media elites, they even deny the existence of God. Well, the effect of that, of course, is to depreciate a man and to emote him from the status of bearer of God's image to simply the best of the beasts. And uh, given that depreciation, how we view our fellow man determines how we treat him. And uh, if we don't accord great worth, value, and dignity, we're not inclined to treat our fellow human beings very well. On the whole issue of marriage, of course, we're embroiled in this whole controversy about homosexual marriage. 
the whole notion of marriage is one that was inspired by God, and it's emblematic, the scripture tells us, of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a sacred and a holy institution, and it's uh, for the purpose, among other things, of fostering the perpetuation of the human race, as well as providing help to one another, to lift one another up and help each other get through the difficult times of life. And then uh, the third issue I think that we really need to be aware of and take into account is this whole issue about what is, what is our obligation to the poor and the infirm and the needy? Are we our brother's keeper or not? We've already talked about how vulnerable groups are at risk because of this depreciated value of the human life. And the scripture has a lot to say about this, not the least of which is to be found in Matthew 25 where Jesus told uh, his followers, he says, uh, talking about uh, visiting him when he was sick or in prison and uh, meeting his needs, he says, to the extent you've done it to these, the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So we see in the scripture that Jesus really identifies in an extricable, close way with the poor and needy. And I think Christians need to recognize that we have an obligation to the poor and needy. And really, I think the big controversy today is how do we best go about meeting that obligation? Do we do it through government? Do we do it through private charities? Do we do it through the church? Well, there are a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but one thing is for sure, we have an ongoing and continuous uh, obligation to care for those who need our help. You were asked to represent Terry Schiavo. Could you tell us about that? What were the issues involved? And what did you learn from the experience? I think people in Florida are undoubtedly very familiar with that case. Terry Schiavo was a young woman who collapsed under very strange and uh, not completely known circumstances and who suffered from a severe uh, disability of the brain as a consequence of that. As a result of her handicap, she was in need of a feeding and fluids that were provided through a tube. And the issue that arose in that case was whether or not her separated husband and uh, her husband from whom he, she was estranged and with whom he had had a relationship, finding comfort in the arms of uh, people other than his wife, whether or not he was going to be permitted to authorize the withdrawal of food and fluids, the effect of which meant that Terry was going to die of dehydration and starvation. You may recall that the Florida legislature passed a law that gave uh, Governor Bush one-time authority to intervene on Terry's behalf and make a decision about whether or not food and fluids was going to be continued, and that provoked a whole controversy. There were many who advocated that because of Terry's infirmity, that hers was not a life worth living, and it didn't warrant uh, being sustained. And then on the flip side, there were those like Governor Bush and people like myself who felt that, you know, just because uh, Terry suffered from these infirmities did not mean that she was somehow compromised in her, her humanity or that, that she didn't deserve to be provided for by others. At the end of the day, uh, what we saw was the courts basically authorized uh, her husband, who had had a, at one time a direct financial interest in her estate, to withdraw feeding and fluids, and over the course of about 13 days, Terry finally succumbed to, to dehydration and starvation. I guess the thing that I learned most 
from that experience is that every human life matters. Every human life counts. And that unless people of goodwill and uh, who have a spirit of charity are willing to intervene on behalf of those people, that they are very much at risk by forces who would emasculate their human dignity and feel that they could be disposed of on the ash heap of history. At one point, you decided to run for governor of Florida. Tell us something about that. Why did you decide to run? How did the race affect your life and family? And would you recommend seeking public office to other Christians? Well, first of all, I certainly would recommend other Christians to seek public office. I think it's important for Christians to be engaged in every level of the culture. Uh, You're engaged right now in the fields of art and literature. You've been engaged in the past in uh, the field of government. And, uh, you know, the truism that all it takes uh, for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing is absolutely true. Nature abhors a vacuum. I believe that the values that Christians uh, bring to the table that emanate from our Judeo-Christian tradition accord uh, the greatest freedom and the greatest protections for all members of a pluralistic society. And if we aren't in the arena advancing those values, someone else will be in the arena advancing a different set of values. And many times those values are inimical to those that flow out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Many times uh, people who don't subscribe to that tradition look at life through a utilitarian lens. And they weigh a person's uh, net worth based on things like quality of life calculus or functional capacity studies. And again, people who suffer from disability or infirmity or dementia or whatever, they become at risk. And so we need people who are willing to stand in the gap, stand up on behalf of the weak, and uh, make sure that their lives and their dignity are respected and protected by government. It was a wonderful experience. Obviously, I did not win, but I was greatly enriched uh, by that experience, and my whole family was to see people who are willing to just knock themselves out for you, who believe in uh, what you stand for, make the kinds of sacrifices that they did on our behalf was uh, very gratifying and also very humbling. It It was just a great experience. Ken, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Your insights are very important, but before we leave today, we'd like to close with a prayer. A prayer for government leaders. God of glory and ruler of men, thank you for the manifold blessings that you have bestowed upon our community and nation. We remember today that all good gifts come down only from the Father of light, and that it is you and you alone who have provided for our needs and our hopes. Help us to never forget that you are sovereign and that we are completely dependent on your grace and mercy for that which sustains us and makes us fruitful. Lord, we pray that you would remember those who have been elected and appointed to serve as leaders of our communities, states, and nation. You have ordained that governments be established among men. It is your desire and command that governments provide for the defense of the weak and helpless and foster the common good. 
You desire all governments everywhere to pursue truth and justice in every action they take. For only honest and just servants are consistent with your holy character. Praise be to you, Holy Father, that our faith need not rest on the actions of any human leader, no matter how powerful, for the greatest among men can never escape your providence and will. Thank you, blessed Lord, for your kindness and mercy. Glorify yourself in directing the ways of this nation and cause your name to be magnified on the earth. In Christ's holy name we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.